0: Uh, we just wanted to do a quick intro to this podcast and give a quick trigger warning. So um, this is going to be talking about the satanic panic and therefore some of the claims around um, ritualistic abuses and therefore sexual abuses during that um, time. Uh, this does look into not um, abuses that necessarily actually happen, but ones that were implanted memories by uh, unscrupulous therapists and so on or bad um police ethical interviewing and so on um so that is something to bear in mind but i just wanted to put out there at the top um obviously we um are not discounting any uh claims of actual abuses that people know that they've definitely had and, and things like that that is um not what this is about at all
1: yeah we think this is particularly important for this podcast uh, because we know that some people who have left high control groups have been the victims of abuse including sexual abuse and we wouldn't want anybody to think that we doubt you or question your experience. In fact this is something Professor French himself stresses in the interview. Finally we want to make clear that in some of the cases discussed certain types of therapies are talked about. This doesn't mean that we think therapy is a bad thing. I personally believe that licensed, qualified and experienced therapists or counsellors can be very useful in aiding recovery.
0: Hi Dad. Hi Celine.
1: Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high control religious group around the time you were born.
0: So you're in your 20s then?
1: (laughs) Well, maybe in my head.
0: What Should I Think About? is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About? podcast. I'm Celine. And I'm Stephen.
1: And today we've got a very special guest, very excited about our guest today. It's Chris French. Um, Chris French is Emeritus Professor and Head of the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit, department at Psycholo- uh, Department of psychology at goldsmiths university of london here i thought i'd have problems with uh, normalistic <laughs> mm-hmm. um so he's a he's a fellow of the british psychological society and a patron of the british humanist association but most prestigiously is the organizer of skeptics in the pub <laughs> at mm-hmm. greenwich so uh, welcome professor french to the podcast thank you mm-hmm. Uh, just firstly, would you perhaps give us a quick explanation of what anomalistic psychology is, please? <laughs> Always a good place to start, yes. yeah.
2: Um, I, mean, I mean, the reason, well, I'll, I'll give you the kind of, bit of background as to kind of why I ended up kind of calling it the anomalistic psychology research unit it was because in the past um, you know people quite naturally would kind of when they found out you were uh, in a psychology department at university or what area of research and I would have to come up with something like oh I'm interested in the psychology of ostensibly paranormal experiences and related beliefs which is a bit of a mouthful I wanted something Mm -hmm. more concise and that I didn't come up with the Term anomalistic psychology. It was already there in the literature. Um, and basically, it's kind of the psychology of weird stuff. So yeah. I thought, right, that will do for me. Uh, I'll have that. Uh, but of course, the problem is now what happens is I say my area is anomalistic psychology. And although a few people, the word's getting out there, but most people haven't got a clue what that is. So then the immediate next question is, "What the hell is that?" And it's back to the psychology of ostensibly paranormal experiences, etc. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was a valiant attempt, and uh, yeah. I, I'm trying to kind of convert the world to uh, appreciating how interesting anomalistic psychology
1: is. Well, I guess that's my my second question, follow up question is: so, uh, what, why? Uh, what got you so interested in that particular area of psychology? What was it about that that, that really interested you?
2: It was, again. I've, I've kind of I've been writing about this quite recently, and uh, people will have heard me. Some people will have heard me tell this story before, but um, I used to believe in a lot of paranormal stuff myself. Um, and throughout uh, doing an undergraduate degree in psychology at Manchester, and then I went I ended up doing a PhD at Leicester uh, on a completely different area. on kind of um, brain function, hemisphere differences and EEG and all that stuff. Um, And someone just recommended a particular book, which they thought I'd enjoy. It was called Parapsychology, Science or Magic uh, by James Alcock. And it was the first sceptical coverage of any of these kind of topics that I'd ever read. And indeed, I did enjoy the book. And uh, it kind of opened up a whole new world for me. Um, I realised that there was a a sceptical literature out there, if you knew where to look. Um, and I got then kind of hold of books by people like James Randi and you know I, I was already familiar with kind of Carl Sagan and I read a bit of Martin Gardner but this whole new world opened up to me um, of being a professional wet blanket you know going around and saying <laughs> well that's not true <laughs> but uh, but no I mean I seriously I found it really interesting because I'm still very interested in the weird things and hmm. weird aspects of life I don't necessarily buy into a paranormal explanation and I'm interested in what's what, what can it tell us about the human mind by studying these kinds of experiences, uh, the kind of weird beliefs, from my perspective, that, that people have. Um, you know, what's it all about? How and, and again, you know, you can look around the world and you will always find in every society at any point in history, people who claim to have had these experiences and beliefs in life after death, in telepathy and, you know, the whole range, Um, so it's clearly an important part of being human. And I th- the other thing, of course, is that as a scientist, if if any of that stuff's true, then science is either mistaken or missing out on a huge chunk of some very important stuff. So, again, from a scientific perspective, it's also really important. So, yeah. And, and then there I, could, I could waffle on, you know, I could go on about the kind of consumer protection side of these things yeah. that... Uh, if people are being sold services based on paranormal claims, but actually they're, they're not really getting those services, then that's important. There are inherent dangers with with some of these practices. Also, people clearly gain some benefits from doing it psychologically, at least. So you know, let's not let's not mm. ignore that. It's a real part of the picture.
0: So when you're speaking with people that really staunchly believe and. Um, what's it like having that conversation how do you have that conversation how do you begin even it's
2: it's I mean, it's really interesting I mean because you get a whole range of um of kind of different reactions I mean there are, there are you know I, I am aware you know, I do get hate mail occasionally <laughs> um some of it kind of can, you know, can be quite nasty oh. but I've got a thick skin so I'll cope with that oh. um I mean by and large I mean I, I do think it's important to kind of treat the People that you may disagree with, with respect, um, I'm not out to um, kind of ridicule anyone. I suppose there are again. I'd, let, let's temper that slightly. I think I've got no time at all for the people that I view as being kind of deliberate frauds and con artists, or even people who may sincerely believe in what they're saying, but I think their views are dangerous bullshit. Pardon my French. Uh, so people like say David Ike and these kind of weird and wacky conspiracy theorists, um, then you know I, I, I might kind of occasionally resort to the odd little bit of uh, jokes at their expense and so on. But by and large, if um, you're talking about people who just you know have these beliefs because they find it helps them to live their lives, well, that's fine. You can believe whatever you like, as long as it doesn't have negative impacts on other people, as far as I'm concerned. But if you want to know what I think about those issues and why I think what I think... I will be quite happy to tell you, um, but yeah, I mean, I get on, I get on very well with a number of people who are kind of, you know, professional mediums and psychics and so on. Uh, they know that I don't think they can do what they, feel, what they think they can do, um, but if they sincerely believe it, then they're in a different category for me than the deliberate con artists. And there are are those people out there, but by and large, I think most people who make those claims of these incredible powers genuinely believe
1: that they have got them. Mm. That's really interesting. So um, so a few weeks ago, one of our earlier podcasts, we did a a Supernatural uh, special, and we talked Mm -hmm. about some of these issues. And we also then reviewed the film... um, uh, red lights. Red lights. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, mm. Which kind of, there's I, a. There's I reviewed a that it.
2: for The Guardian, actually. Oh, yeah. Because oh,
1: sure. yeah. <laughs> there's a scene in that that is um, that kind of straight out of. Was it Peter? P- Peter Popoff? Popoff. Yeah. They
2: actually used the line, didn't they? Right. They kind of, mm. yeah. If yeah. you can't hear me, you're in trouble. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I like the, the. There are quite a few little in jokes in that film that, you yeah. know, you'd have to be kind of very into this whole world to think, oh, I see what you're doing there. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, you know, without saying too much, I, I wasn't too keen on the ending, but hey,
0: that's me.
1: <laughs> well, we, we, Celine came up with an alternative ending on that, so uh, we, we, we kind of, uh, we th- well, yeah. in the end, we thought it might be better than we thought it was in the first place. I movie. was like, try
0: to exist in Death of the Orphaland, where I choose my own, I, I was just like, maybe it's just, he's just, he's gone off the deep end and believes it himself, but it's not really what's happening, it's still a series of coincidences mm-hmm. and out. Oh, I'll yeah. go for that then. <laughs> yeah, I, I prefer it that way. I think yeah. it seems better of a movie. Absolutely. Way. Yeah. yeah.
1: Mm. Cool. Um, yeah. So um, obviously, you're, I, mean, I, I came across uh, you on on many a, a TV documentary because, like you, I'm I've always been really interested in, I suppose, particularly things like um, uh, UFO and claims of aliens and and mm-hmm. so on. And you've been on a few pro- television programs about things like that. So I, I sort of came across you talking about these these things and clearly you you think it's important to engage uh, with the public in this area in particular what i mean i think i I can guess why but do you want to just tell us why you think that is so important
2: yeah well again there are a number of reasons really i mean one is i suppose just i suppose if you find something really interesting yourself then you're quite happy to talk about it Mm. to to other people um and, you know, I mean, I found that at Goldsmiths that I, I kind of for many, many years taught kind of I've taught various aspects, neuropsychology, experiment, cognitive psychology, you know, and and so forth. Um, but it's all a bit dry <laughs> it's uh you know it's interesting and it's very important but it's a little bit dry whereas when i started teaching anomalistic psychology you know the students loved it and i and again i think you can get over some really important um kind of messages some important lessons there and this applies to the kind of doing this to the wider public as well um about uh why we should trust certain sources of evidence certain types of evidence more than others I I think you know there's a very natural human tendency uh to to trust our own personal experience as being the be-all and end all. You know, I mean I've, I've heard many people who would label themselves as skeptics who say, well, you know, I won't believe in a, a ghost in ghosts or or UFOs until I see one with my own eyes. And I'm thinking, well, you shouldn't then really, you know, <laughs> because you're just as prone to misperception as, as anybody else. Um and I said, yeah, I think they're really important kind of lessons to get over. I also think that anomalistic psychology in general is a really good way of kind of teaching critical thinking. And I think that's kind of so important in so many areas of life, not just the um, with, with, with respect to the kind of weird stuff that I'm intre- primarily interested in, but it goes beyond that. You know, I mean, dealing with kind of uh, what politicians tell us, what advertisers tell us mm. and so on and so forth. Um, and even just, you know, in terms of um, reasoning, you know, having arguments and discussions with friends and relatives, you know those, those kind of skills, I think, can, do generalise at least to some extent. You know, and being aware of the fact that we've all got these biases, mm. um, and then it, it might help a little bit for us to kind of try and guard against them in our own thinking.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, so, obviously, um, the, the thing that prompted us to ask if you'd like to come on the. Um, the podcast you recently uh did a talk at conway hall
0: mm-hmm. about
1: the uh i guess what's been framed the satanic panic um of the 1980s mm-hmm. um and that's obviously what what got me interested in in talking to you um would you be able to just give us a i know it's a big subject so i'm not asking you to sort of do the, the presentation but could you just give us a quick summary of what that was about for those who yeah, don't sure. really know yeah.
2: Um, I mean, I mean, there, again, one of the reasons that I was very keen to do the talk is that, you know, all right, well, I, I think to some extent, people think that that's something that just happened in the past and it's it's over, we don't need to worry about it anymore. But I think there are worrying signs that these things can, you know, they're sometimes referred to as kind of zombie ideas. You know, you think you've killed them off, but then they get up and start walking again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but essentially what happened back in the... Uh, 1980s and 90s um there was the satanic panic as it's been referred to um started off in america but spread around the world to other countries including the uk australia uh, europe and uh essentially it was a kind of fairly widespread uh belief um promulgated by the media to a large extent um that was saying that satanic abuse was real, it was widespread, it involved very powerful people who were able to kind of cover up any evidence that you know might reveal them. Um and uh that there were two main kind of strands of evidence which seemed to support these kind of claims. <clears throat> On the one hand, uh, there were a number of um scares in daycare centers again particularly in the states um where the people who ran these daycare centers were accused of being satanists being engaged in uh, all kinds of really bizarre abuse i mean the most extreme things you could possibly imagine you know human sacrifice babies animals eating human flesh uh sexual perversions of all kind drinking blood you know the Whatever the, the the most kind of extreme forms of abuse you can think of, these were the claims that were being made. And this was all supposed to be going on when people were dropping off their little kids at the at the nursery for the day and picking them up at the end of the day, um, and so there was evidence from uh, children uh, who apparently were kind of saying yes, this was going on, and on the other hand, you also had evidence from adults people who were going into therapy for very common psychological problems, things like anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, insomnia, whatever it might be, with no memory whatsoever of ever having been the victims of uh, childhood sexual abuse. But by the time the therapy was finished, they not only were convinced that they had been so abused, typically at the hands of their own parents, Um, but they had detailed memories to back that up. Mm. And in some cases, the abuse that was being reported was this extreme type, the the kind of satanic ritual abuse. And so these two lines of evidence seemed to kind of mutually support each other. Um, The problem was that um, (laughs) both forms of evidence were extremely flawed. Um, There were kind of... I guess there's three points I'd make there. First off, you know, surprisingly, given what was supposed to be going on, there was no physical forensic evidence found. There were, mm. there were no bodies. There were no, you know, you think about what was supposed to be going on. There should have been kind of yeah. bodily fluids all over the place, but th- there wasn't, you know. Um, so the forensic evidence didn't stack up. If you looked at how the uh, children's, um, reports had come about it was as a result of extremely inappropriate forms of questioning really really mm. kind of people going in convinced that this was happening and right. basically they would ask the the children repeatedly you know is this was this happening was this happening? They'd, they'd lie to the kids they'd say you know your, your classmates have uh, all told us they can remember doing mm. this can, why can't you remember sure you can remember kids would repeatedly deny it and eventually they would crack and say Yes, OK. And as soon as they did that, they were praised, they were rewarded, you know. So we can look back now and see how terrible it was. And again, that was compounded by various self-appointed experts saying these are the signs of uh, that your child might be being uh, abused. These were things like, you know, bed wetting and temper tantrums and things that are just very common in children. You know, they're not mm-hmm. at all indications of, uh, of of abuse like this. So so that evidence was really worthless um the big question from the uh, people who were going into therapy was were these recovered memories true memories or were they false memories and you know the only kind of good thing to come out of this horrendous situation that was tearing families apart leading to people you know having to stand trial being sent to prison and so on and so forth was it did generate some uh, really interesting research regarding our susceptibility to false memories um and again there's a lot to say about that but suffice it to say that you know we now have uh, several reliable techniques that can be used by experimental psychologists to implant false memories in a sizable minority of you know volunteer sample uh, it won't work on everybody but it will mm. work Yeah, you know, basically it shows that it it can happen it does happen, it does happen. Mm-hmm. and the idea that this is what's happening in these therapeutic situations it i mean the therapy the therapeutic situations unintentionally kind of provide the perfect conditions for the formation of false memories
1: okay that's really interesting so there's a few things to um, i guess unpack there that so the, one of the um uh w- one of the experiments i believe related to a shopping mall that's correct. Um, yeah. Uh, do you want to just tell us how that demonstrates the ability or the the like the possibility that that people sure. can sure. embed false memories? Um, The
2: idea that, I mean, this was Elizabeth Loftus's work. She was kind of the the queen of false memory research. Um, And initially, this was just something that was just done on a kind of very small sample of N equals one. Um, But it was subsequently done on larger samples and other people have used it. And, you know, these effects do happen. One of the problems is this this kind of study is very labour intensive. But essentially what you need to do... um, is you get volunteer participants to take part in um, a study of autobiographical memory. That's, you know, memory for things that have happened to you personally in your life. Um, You need to contact their parents or carers and ask about certain kind of significant events that really did take place during their childhood, like, you know, maybe going on a holiday or a, a special Christmas present they'd got one year or something like this um, and you then get them in um, and you tell them that you've been in touch with their relatives and you've got this, it's a list of four events which uh, you say took place during their childhood. Three of them actually did. One of them didn't. It was made up and the, the family have confirmed as far as they were, this never happened. Mm-hmm. And that, that made up event was is getting lost in a shopping mall, being very upset um, and then eventually being reunited, uh, with, with the parents. Um, and you kind of give, you, you, you give an, a kind of brief description of each event and say, tell us as much as you can remember about that. And of course, when people are given the shopping mall incident, they say, no, I can't remember that at all. Um, and you say basically, well, go away, have a think about it. So try and come up with more details if you can. And we'll, we'll interview you again in a, in a few days. Um, you do this a couple of times. By the time you've got, done the third interview, round about, in this initial study, about a quarter of the participants were, were coming up with memories of having been lost in a shopping mall. I think it's at the age of five. Um, and, and several of them were kind of adding in additional details that hadn't even been suggested by, by the experimenter. Um, so that's a kind of, kind of proof of concept, if you like. You know, Now, obviously, that's a kind of mildly stressful Memory to try and implant, and there are ethical limits. You mm-hmm. couldn't, you know, you, you couldn't get a, an ethics committee, and quite rightly, to approve mm-hmm. you to try and implant false memories of childhood oh. sexual abuse. But other more stressful uh, memories have been implanted: being attacked by a wild animal, um, having a, an overnight stay in hospital, etc., uh, etc. Et um, and yeah, these 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 um, techniques do work
1: on as i said
2: before a sizable
1: minority Mm. Mm. so what's what's happening then from a a psychological point of view what what are the mechanisms that are um creating those memories obviously you've talked about the the external um suggestions and so Mm -hmm. on but what's happening inside how are how are people essentially just making these things up or at least some of them making these uh Constructing these memories?
2: Well, one of the um, mechanisms that's probably at work is something called imagination inflation. I mean, because again, using slightly different techniques, um, if you get people to just imagine events, which initially they say never happened to them, um, but you get them to try and imagine it, and then a few weeks later, you ask them again about, you know, you give them a whole list of, of potential events that may have happened to them, um, you will find that there is a tendency for those that they have imagined to, uh, it's more likely that they will actually now say, yes, they think that did happen to them. And again, in some cases, actually have some memories to back it up. Um, And and this is particularly effective in people with very vivid imaginations. And what we assume is happening is uh, what's called kind of source misattribution. Um, People are remembering their imagining of the event and mistaking it for something that really did happen. Uh, hence, it's more likely to happen if you've got a very good imagination. If you've not got a very good imagination, you don't have that very rich uh, memory of when you were imagining it. So you're less likely to make the mistake, but we can all make these mistakes. And this is the other thing to emphasize is that, um, Although you're particularly likely to develop false memories if either, you know, you take part in these devious psychology studies or if you are at the hands of a, a dodgy therapist, um, yeah, we all have, all, well, all, yeah, I can't say that, obviously, with 100% certainty, but I think it's highly likely that we all have false memories. Um, one of the kind of interesting areas of research that people have been doing over the last few years is into what are called non-believed memories. And these are essentially kind of false memories that the person themselves has now realized are false memories. So they feel the same as all the other memories in your head. um, But you yourself have decided on some basis that, no, I know that didn't happen, but I've still got the memory of it in my head. I did a a really interesting project with an artist friend of mine. Um, We called it the False Memory Archive, and we just asked people to send us Examples of either their own or other people's false memories, and and they were amazing, they were an amazing response. Um, and some of them were great, you know. People would kind of have things like, Well, you know, I remember kind of I was walking down the road, a, kid, a child kind of holding my mum's hand, and a dinosaur crossed the road in front of us, you know, and a really kind of weird <laughs> stuff. Like that. I know it didn't happen, but I've got a really clear picture of it. So, whether it's kind of people, um, again, mistaking something they imagined or maybe something mm-hmm. they dreamt or something that they saw in a film, you know, but mm-hmm. that memory has come from somewhere. Um, even if they now acknowledge, yeah. and about 20% of people, if you ask them, report that they have got those kind of memories. But of course, a, a higher percentage have got memories that you, you might still think are genuine, accurate memories, but they're not, but nobody's ever challenged them. You know, are they're, they're, yeah, they're still things that you've got that yeah. mental image in your head and uh, you, you think therefore it happened.
0: Me and a friend definitely did this to ourselves. I remember, like, <laughs> um, we play- We started playing something that we made up as kids. We called it the coin game, where we just flipped a a coin, and it was either heads or tails. And it was like, oh, we're talking to ghosts, and they either like, say yes or no. Um, That's really and, interesting. Yeah, and we were like definitely feeding that into each other other kids would Ooh. see us doing this on the playground and join in and then they'd say oh I definitely saw something over there or like something <laughs> oh it's definitely colder now or whatever and it started you know yeah. feeding in and I think I believed it less in the moment and then more after the fact when we were all sat in class later and you're not allowed to talk to each other you're meant to be working <laughs> you're but you're just sitting there about thinking it, about yeah. it you know and you go back on lunch and you're like it was definitely you know we've got ourselves into trouble here guys it's really bad you know and I remember you know, I definitely know none of it's real now, but I remember thinking we were seeing things and it feeling very real. At well, I mean, the time. again, this
2: is—I mean, again, this is the power of suggestion. This is another kind of relevant thing to anomalistic psychology in general. Um, I mean, one of the nice things about anomalistic psychology is that you can actually try and kind of test these things under properly controlled conditions so that you know exactly what is going on and how mm. people's perception of what's going on is deviating from that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's a really nice example of what you just said there. Um, I mean, in fact, you know, one, of the, one of the kind of biases that we have, if, if that's the right word for it, is that we w- human beings are really good at kind of making sense of the world around us picking up on meaningful patterns uh, but sometimes we kind of we we read meaning in when it isn't really there mm-hmm. and there was in fact um a study that was done um of essentially what you were saying the, 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 the participants in the study were told that um they could have a session an, kind of an online session this was mm. years and years back you know um have an online session with with a counselor but the councillor could only answer in terms of yes or no, so mm-hmm. you know they all had to be yes no questions that were put to the councillor. And in actual fact, the responses were just entirely random. But mm-hmm. people would often find it really insightful, you know, the the, the kind of responses they were getting from this councillor as they yeah. thought. Um, and it's a, it's exactly what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think you're communicating with something outside, mm-hmm. and in fact, it's just random. You're yeah. the one who's reading the meaning into it, but yeah. it can still feel very real. And then the additional mm-hmm. thing of actually seeing things that probably were not really happening. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we did, we did a, a, a study of that. And again, this brings us back to the memory thing again. Um, one of the phenomena that we're interested in, and this is something that my colleague at Goldsmiths, Fiona Gabbard, who, who I know you know, mm-hmm. um, she, she did research on something called memory conformity. Uh, that's where you have a situation. If you only have a single eyewitness account, you would not give that as much evidential weight as if you've got multiple witnesses and they're all saying more or less the same right. thing. And that's probably quite sensible. One thing to bear in mind is that... Um, if people witness something unusual, whether it be a crime or a possible sighting of the Loch Ness Monster or a ghost or a UFO, they will discuss it with each other. And one person's account can influence another person's memory. Um, and so, again, Fiona has done research on this in a, in a forensic context. Uh, we thought it would be quite interesting to look at it in an anomalistic context. So we we based what we did on a study that Richard Wiseman had um, uh published um he was i mean richard is a member of the inner magic circle mm. not just a magic circle oh, that's the well. schmucks but the inner magic circle <laughs> um, and he's very very familiar and aware yeah, of the power some of the great videos
1: on youtube
2: absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah, yeah. now he's, he's a good lad um, and what what he was interested in um i mean one of the things that again i was very impressed by as a as a, as a young lad was Uri Geller when he Mm. appeared on the scene and he appeared to do all these amazing psychic feats. Um, I've now got lots of friends who are conjurers and mentalists and so on. and They can do the same thing and they say, Mm. nothing paranormal involved, you know, it's all a trick. Mm -hmm. Um, But in particular, there was the thing of bending spoons, you know, kind of gently uh, stroking the metal and it would appear to just melt. Um, Now... As I say, I've got a lot of friends who are conjurers and, 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 and uh, they say that they can basically do the same thing. And they say, mm. but it's a trick. It's mm. sleight of hand. It's nothing to do with the paranormal. Mm. Um, and if Uri Geller is doing it using psychic powers, well, he's doing it the hard way because it looks just the same when you do it as a trick. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, you know, that, I kind of certainly believe that. And um, but a lot of people will say, well, I've seen Geller do this. And it can't have been sleight of hand, because after he had finished bending the, the spoon or the fork, he'd put it down and it carried on bending when he wasn't even touching it. Oh. Now, um, that would take some explaining. I mean, maybe not. I mean, apparently these days you can buy gimmicked spoons of forks that will do that. But back in the day when Geller first appeared, that, that wasn't around. Um, so if that were true, it would it would be a real challenge to the sceptics. But of course, you know, was that really true or was it the power of suggestion? Um, so Richard did a very simple uh, little study with uh, Emma Greening. Um, they uh, videoed an alleged psychic who, in fact, was a conjurer using sleight of hand. And the interesting part came after he had bent the key. He puts it down There's a nice close up shot. Uh, and in one condition the uh, participants hear the psychic say, if you look closely, you'll see it's still bending. (laughs) And in the other condition, it's exactly the same. They just don't get that suggestion. Of those who get the suggestion, about 40% report they think the key carries on bending. the other condition, nobody does. Uh, It's a huge effect with a really simple manipulation, you know, Um, but it shows the power of suggestion. Now, we we borrowed the, the video from Richard for our study, but we threw in a memory conformity element by getting people to watch the video in pairs and then discuss it with each other and then independently report back what they had seen. And what the genuine participants didn't know was that the other person in the pair was in fact a confederate stooge working with us Mm -hmm. who'd been instructed to either say during the discussion it did carry on bending or it didn't. And that had an additive effect. So if you were in the condition where you got both the suggestion from the psychic and you got the reinforcement from the co-witness, we got to levels of 60% of people saying they thought the key carried on bending. You It absolutely doesn't, but it makes Mm. the point that it's not just what happens when you're witnessing an event mm. that can influence your memory, but also stuff that happens afterwards. So, you know, which again, I think is an important, an important message and it's got important ramifications for the legal system and, mm. you know, forensic psychology and so on.
1: I guess going back to the, um, the, the satanic panic, um, mm. times, um, obviously this, this podcast comes at the subject from a a particular angle in that we, um, I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness in a, which what I describe as a high control group. Um, but what's kind of interesting, um, I, I did a little bit of searching for what they, because I do remember this. I do remember this happening when I was growing up. Um, there's a quote from a 1989 Watchtower, which is the Jehovah's Witness mm-hmm. magazine, and they they talk about coinciding with the rise of satanic music, is an increase in satanic cult activity in the united states and canada reporting on a recent police seminar in ontario the globe and mail canadian newspaper says that satanic cults are involved in animal sacrifices graveyard desecrations and the ritual abuse of children um and of course this fit very much in with the worldview of jehovah's witnesses Mm -hmm. that satan and his demons are in the vicinity of the earth and they are very active you know with um interfering with people's lives and um and so on. And and I was wondering if there are kind of a set of conditions that are required for this sort of thing to to take root. And um obviously there's implications for our day now, but is there like a set of necessary conditions that you would say are required within a society to create these kind of
2: Well, I think things? I mean one of the things you've referred to there is that kind of fact that as a Jehovah's Witness you will have inherited a belief system from mm. your parents, presumably. Yeah. And, I mean, in general, it does make sense for us to believe what our parents tell us. I mean, in general, mm. it be- it makes sense for us to believe what any- anybody tells us. And um, The kind of default seems to be that we accept mm. what we're told, but, you know, in some circumstances, it's useful to kind of then have a kind of second phase where you kind of just think, well, is yes. that true or not, you know? Mm, um yeah. Now, in the case, I mean, obviously, the fact that that all that message already fit with, with your belief system
1: mm-hmm.
2: means that you're kind of more likely to accept it. Um, there are various uh, other kind of factors that will that will kind of come into play as well, because um, that that claim, and, and particularly as it's coming from kind of what we're seen as being authoritative sources, mm-hmm. um, is a kind of confirmation of your belief system you know it's it's, mm, it's not just that it fits is. in but it actually proves mm. that your, your view of yes. the world is right and again we all you know we all want to think that I mean one of the things that was really interesting um, in terms of the kind of satanic panic back in the 80s and, and 90s was that you had this kind of weird alliance between some very unexpected groups on the one hand you right. had the fundamentalist Christians which Again, you would expect it fits very much into their worldview. On the other hand, you had kind of feminists who, now you presume that they probably didn't believe in the literal reality of Satan, whereas obviously the the Mm. fundamentalist Christians would, but but they saw the kind of Mm. satanic abuse thing of being yet another example of a kind of uh, male oppression of of females, typically the victims were females. Um, Mm. And so they would have a very different kind of interpretation of what's going on, but they still thought it was real. They still thought it was happening and um you mm. you've also got you, you tend to find that these kinds of kind of beliefs in uh what I would call magical thinking tends to increase at, at times of great uncertainty and uh, kind of you know political uh, uncertainty economic uncertainty etc um, which is again one reason to be very worried about the situation now given, given the uh, mm. year, the last couple of years that we 've had and the period that we 're still into some extent um, mm. but so I mean I think mm. if you 've got that kind of uh, belief system where it fits into the belief system anyway, um, and again, yeah. you know you can if we drill down a bit beyond the kind of just the general claim of satanic abuse, but to th- that kind of whole world view. Where you believe in mm. Satan, you believe in demons, you believe in possession, you believe, you know, the power of exorcisms and so on. Mm. Again, you can see how, yeah. um, you know, you, the, the the whole thing with with possession and exorcism is that, um, what, you know, why would anybody kind of take on the role of being possessed if it's if it's not real? Mm. Um, well, mm. yeah. There's a, without going into the kind of the whole detail of it, or I can't be lie, but um, there's a lot of evidence that you know these are kind of learned roles. You learn what you're supposed to do from those around you, um, mm. and there are advantages to be had. I mean, there's a there's a book by I think it's Michael Cuneo. Um, I think it's called American Exorcism. I think uh, where he points out there's a, there's a lot of unofficial exorcisms in in America, for example. And when you think about, well, what are the benefits? What are people getting out of this? Well, for the for the exorcist, it's obviously the kind of kudos of kind of taking on Satan mm. or Satan's demons and beating them through the power of your faith. Yes. You know, I mean, wow. Um, mm. For the person who is possessed, again, when you start and think about it... Um, all of your past sins, you know, if you've been a kind of drunk and a womanizer and you're going to get into fights and you're generally a, you know, an antisocial person, that wasn't you. That was not your. You weren't responsible for that. That was the demons. That was the Satan who made you do all those things. Um, and now you can kind of be welcomed back in. You go through this this kind of ritual, and you're welcomed back into the fold. Mm-hmm. And for the wider community, again, it's this thing of it proves it's it's confirmation that your belief system is correct. You know that, that your views are are correct. Again, I should add here that um, I do make a distinction between the kind of Satanism type claims that, that go around and the fact that, that you know that there is unfortunately when we 're talking about mm-hmm. exorcism there are cases where uh, the the person who is said to be possessed did not willingly take on that role themselves mm-hmm. I mean it tends to be um, kind of uh, in the UK, kind of uh, families where there's kind of African roots and uh, and a belief in the possibility of, of possession and a belief in witchcraft and so on. If you have a very naughty child, they may assume that that's. That that child is possessed, yes. and then the kind of exorcism is is you know basically physical abuse that can in some there cases... was a case recently, wasn't there? Yeah, that there have been, there have been numerous cases oh, that only in some cases have led to deaths. Yes. You know, not not oh. just kind of horrendous abuse, but actual deaths. Oh. And again, yeah. you know, in contrast to the satanic claims. We've got clear forensic, physical forensic evidence there. You know, there's no doubt at all those things are happening. Um, But the perpetrators themselves are the deeply, deeply religious Christians, (laughs) typically. Mm. Uh, Whereas, you know, it's not it's not Satanists that are doing this stuff. Um, And Mm. so, you know, some people have tried to kind of point to those kind of cases and say, oh, this proves that, you know, ritual abuse is real. And therefore, satanic abuse is real. But they're very, very different.
1: It's the Christian groups that are doing it. Yeah,
0: it really, is. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting. Maybe a bit of a a tricky one is just. Um, I think it's really important to explore these issues because obviously these are people that are, regardless of the, if what happened to them happened or or, or not, they're, mm. they're they're, ha- going through s- something. You know, they've been if they've been a false memories been implanted. I mean, they're a victim of that, Absolutely. regardless. Um, yeah, I suppose. I mean. Um, a, how do you help someone that's gone through that? If you find out that it's a false memory, um, how do you help someone th- through that? Is there is it a different process or because they feel like it's so true because it's been implanted, is it very much the same process that, of helping? No, I mean,
2: them? I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of, the, one of the problems with the legal system, I think in most countries and certainly in the UK, is that very often when there is some... I mean first off, let me say that obviously child sexual abuse is a real issue it is a real yes. problem yes. it does occur it does destroy mm. psychological health and ruin people's lives and it's totally unacceptable um, mm. and that most cases where it's alleged are, in my view are, are probably mm. true mm. Mm. but what we what would the evidence would suggest is that if you are a genuine victim of uh, childhood sexual abuse, uh, particularly if it's in the kind of, I have to say about the age of, I mean, if it's if it's in the very early years, then you don't remember anything. You know, that's, that's mm. just all of us are the same in that respect. Mm. But if it's, right. um, you know, say three or four years onwards, and you can, you know, typically you remember trauma much better than um, non-traumatic events, <laughs> but there's a widespread acceptance on the basis of kind of psychoanalytic views that, Um, this psychological defense mechanism of repression kicks in and it pushes the memory for the abuse down into the subconscious mind and you cannot access it no matter how hard you try. Um, Now, it's those kind of recovered memories that are the the dodgy ones that we need to be very, very cautious about. Um, And as you say... Uh, you know the 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 legal system the legal system typically kind of just takes the approach of well either it really did happen or the accuser is lying consciously mm. lying and neglects this third possibility that maybe they sincerely genuinely believe it happened, but it didn 't They are a victim as you say of uh you know maybe dubious forms of therapy and and so on now typically it is very difficult to to get them to change their mind. Um, for one thing, the therapists that indulge in this kind of therapy will tell the uh that their clients just, just cut off all contact with anybody who doubts what you're saying mm. so you know they're, they're, there's there's no chance of them ever being convinced that it didn't happen mm. it does i mean sometimes you do get what are called retractors these are people who've been through therapy uh believed that they were victims of uh yeah, you know, sexual abuse, possibly satanic ritualised abuse, but then realised actually no, it can't have happened. And, and the, the, yeah, there are cases where therapists have ended up in court, being being sued, uh, particularly in, in the states. Um, with those retractors, you know, I mean, again, you have to be incredibly brave to do that. You know, you've just put your family through this awful, awful situation. I mean, you know, I've, I've got daughters. And the idea that any of them would turn around to me one day and oh. say, I now know what you did to me, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a nightmare, absolutely. Mm. You can't think of anything worse. Um, but to then, for those same rich people to, to realise that, you know, it didn't actually happen and to, I mean, it's what the parents want. You know, I, I'm on the scientific advisory board of the British False Memory Society, and that is a group that is set up to kind of help families who are in this situation. Um and, um, you know, what What uh, I go along to their AGMs most years. Obviously, it's been a bit strange in the last couple of years with the lockdown. Mm. Um, but you're in this kind of massive room full of typically kind of middle aged to aged parents, all of whom have gone through this experience of having an adult child who suddenly made these accusations out of the blue. And they're initially totally just confused, they don't know what the hell's going on. Um, but all they really want, more than anything else, is to be reconciled with, with their mm. child. Mm. Um, now, you get some cases where there's a kind of full retraction where the child just realises, the adult child realises that none of this stuff actually happened. Um, and as I say, you have, you have to, tremendous courage to then say, I'm sorry. I know that I now know this didn't. None of this happened, and I'm sorry for what I put you through. And I don't think the relationship's ever going to be the same again. I don't, no. think, I don't think it can be. You know, when it's been mm. damaged to mm. that extent. But it is what it is What the parents want. Mm. In in other cases, you'll get a kind of situation where the child might continue to believe that they were abused, but they've decided they can forgive. Mm. their their abuser Mm. as they see it for Mm. that abuse which again is a really awkward awful situation to be in you know if you know you didn't do it Mm. but you know your child is convinced that you did do it but i still forgive you you know again oh awful um Mm. but there's not much you can do there really isn't um you know you can try and present them with evidence that um You know, relating to how susceptible we are to false memories and so on. Um,
1: I guess it's difficult because there's also a a need to. I suppose um, I'd I'd echo you know what you've said already, which is that because obviously in the Jehovah's Witness community, the ex-Jehovah's Witness community, there's quite a big um, problem at the moment, or there has been for quite some time, in that Jehovah's Witnesses have a very particular way of dealing with reports Mm. of sexual abuse they have this thing called the two witness rule so this essentially means that if a man and it's normally a man is is accused of abusing his child or another child in the in the congregation um, unless somebody else comes forward or unless he um, admits to it then they they essentially can't go any further with that and there's been some cases where they've not reported it to the police. Um, they claim that the processes are better now, but I think that's debatable. So it's quite an area of sensitivity yeah. within the community that there are members of the ex-community who have been abused and know they've been abused and the congregation um, basically ignored that yeah. Um, yeah. that situation. So I guess we want to stress that, I know you've already said it, but I just want to stress again that you know, if you've uh, if you know and you remember something has happened, then this is not what we're talking about here. Exactly. This is no, where absolutely this is where a um, uh, you've gone into uh, perhaps some therapy for something else, and and then you come out actually with something brand new. Um, so I guess it's worth just re-emphasizing yeah.
2: that.
1: I think I mean another another point to make again, particularly in the context of your
2: podcast, mm. is that for some of these therapists who were engaged in this kind of these dubious forms of therapy, it is very much a high control situation. It's it's very. I was cult-like. thinking just that. You know, I was just thinking um, that. Mm. and 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 some of the kind of techniques that are used are so mm. kind of weird. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, the, there is a definite tendency for the people who are into using those kinds of therapy. But bear in mind, it's the same kind of techniques that are used, whether you're talking about recovering memories of of abuse, be it satanic yeah. or otherwise. And recovering memories of being abducted by aliens or past so life memories. So tell us, tell us is what they're exactly doing. The same techniques. What so what are
1: they doing then in these sessions? What what well are there, they doing? That's there are various
2: different techniques. I mean, one of the kind of most notorious would be hypnotic regression. Yeah, you know. Um, and the idea with hypnotic regression is you put people through a hypnotic induction procedure, and then you get them to kind of mentally travel back in time. Mm. Um, now, typically. Um, what people probably might be most familiar with is where you see somebody, maybe even as part of a stage act, um, mm. being regressed back to the age of five and they suddenly behaving like a child and using mm. child you know, childish mm. language, their voice sounds different, their is different, um, and so on and so forth. It can be kind of quite amusing, you know. Um, but we know from uh studies that have looked at this. That that person is not behaving the way that a genuine five-year-old does. They're behaving the way that most adults think a five-year-old okay. does. So you know they, they will they will be able to do things that a five-year-old can't, and they won't be able to do mm. things that a five-year-old can, <laughs> and so on. Um, now some people go further and think you can use hypnosis to regress back to memories of being born mm. or even life in the womb. That's yeah, and some go even further, <laughs> and, and you can go back into past lives. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, we know from those, yeah, you know, from the, the studies that have been done looking at these kinds of things that um, it's essentially it, it, it's, it's not that people are kind of putting it on because they, they genuinely can believe mm. the imagery is so vivid mm. that they really are you Know back in ancient Rome or wherever they claim to be, but again, what you typically get in is the kind of Hollywood version of life in that place and that era, not the historically accurate version. Um, and you'll even get kind of you know, like a, in one study, um, someone claiming that, that, that they what year was it? they claim they were, I think they claim they were Julius Caesar and it was um 50 AD. Now, they didn't use the ADBC system until centuries after that. So Uh, nobody would have referred to it as in 50 AD, in 50 AD. Um, And other things, you know, you can ask them, uh, you know, is your country at war at the moment? What's the currency of your country? You know, who's the ruler and so on? And they they typically don't know. They typically (laughs) don't know. But, um, and you also can show that um, what they report is very much influenced by the kind of expectations that you lead them to have. So if you do a, uh, a session if you do a series of sessions where you say to everybody, uh, you know, one of the interesting things we 've found is that when people are regressed back into a past life, they're always the same gender as they are in this right. life then yes. that's what you'll get. If you say, one of the interesting things we've found is that when people are regressed back, they're often of the opposite gender to the one in this mm. life, then you'll get that, you know. so it's that's interesting. It's, yeah, mm. it's it's very, very much kind of based on kind of expectation. If you go expecting to find, to recover memories of being abducted by aliens, there's a very good chance that's what you'll get. If you go mm-hmm. thinking that you're going to get past life memories of being Mary, Queen of Scots, that's what you'll get, you know. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: So, what is happening in under hypnosis? Because it's an area that I've, although obviously I've studied psychology for the last eight years, I've never really done anything with hypnosis. And um, it's also in the books about cults, and, and it's not something that Jehovah's Witnesses ever do. So I'm I'm kind of curious as to what is this phenomenon that's happening. I don't I don't really understand. I
2: think it's essentially um, people kind of using their imaginations, you know, and and, and if you are a, a good hypnotic subject, you're probably going to be somebody who's got a very, very vivid imagination. So when someone makes a suggestion to you um, that, you know, you can you can feel your hand getting hotter or something like that, you'd mm. sincerely believe you can feel your hand mm. getting hotter mm. and so on. Um, but equally, you know, in the context of, say, hypnotic regression, you're in a deeply relaxed state. Your, your, your mind tends to kind of fill with imagery when you're in that kind of a state anyway. And obviously it's mm. being guided to some extent by the the suggestions from the hypnotist and it can feel very very real and -hmm. what determines whether people actually think it is real or not is um, is whether or not they already believed in reincarnation Um, you know and if you went in and you already believed in reincarnation then there's a very good chance you'll come out and say that I I'm I'm convinced that you know I really did live that life centuries ago or whatever else it may be Mm -hmm. but it's it's again it's getting back to this thing about imagination right Um, and because if as I say you've got a very, very vivid imagination, it feels incredibly real and some people will therefore believe that it is real
0: um I suppose it's kind of like a bit of a potentially a bit of a lighter question, we'll see. Um but um I've said that before and then it's not been um <laughs> yeah, but of- yeah. <laughs> but um I was thinking so obviously uh you, there's there's people that use this and it's kind of a form of entertainment as well, isn't it? Like you said it can be um can be used for that um there's the you know the well-known himself Darren brown that does all these Mm -hmm. shows and stuff i mean what do you think because whenever me and dad watch this we're like how is he getting away not even how is he doing it we know it's suggestion i mean Mm -hmm. how is it allowed to be he's doing such unethical things surely well i mean yeah you yeah you yeah
2: you you, (laughs) With Darren yeah, Brown, there's, two, there's two, two points I would make. Kind of first off <laughs> is that um, I, I, I think he's a great entertainer. Um, he's very talented. Mm. And again, a lot of, like I say, I've got a lot of friends who are conjurers who all kind of really respect him and mm. think he's, he's fantastic. Uh, but very often when he, you know, sometimes he will tell you how he achieved a particular mm. effect take that with a huge pinch of salt because a lot of the time it just is not true Mm. sometimes it is sometimes Mm. i've seen him do programs on paranormal stuff and he'll talk about cold reading he'll talk about um you know various other aspects where yes he's actually giving you the the straight Mm. information Mm. but a lot of the time when he tells you how he's achieving these effects Mm. It's not. I mean, I mean, psychology just is not that powerful, I mean, which is yeah. probably a good thing, you know. <laughs> but the idea you can influence people to, uh, you know, I mean, you know, to, to assassinate Stephen Fry. I mean, come on, nobody could assassinate Stephen <laughs> Fry. It's ridiculous. Um, I mean, the other thing is, of course, you know, would would Channel Four really risk their entire mm-hmm. enterprise? by, you know, like remember the Russian roulette thing, you know, are they really going to risk somebody blowing their brains out on live TV? No, they are not. Come on, people, just, you know, Mm -hmm. ask these obvious questions. And so, um, yeah, uh, I I kind of, I'm very ambivalent towards Darren Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. As I say, he's, he's a great entertainer, he's a very talented person, but the, the, some of the, the some of the kind of explanations he gives are total bullshit. He's it's, it's overselling yeah. psychology. And mm-hmm. if you really could kind of tell, you know, where someone had been on holiday in 1987 from the way they twitched their left eyebrow, that'd be pretty near as good as being able to read their mind, wouldn't it? Really, you Absolutely. know? No, it's bullshit. You know.
1: Yeah, um, it, I always say he he tells you he's going to lie. He yes. lies to you. And then you believe him. Yeah. So he Cause, is... Because uh, he, he, is cause
2: he does this thing of apparently taking off the... Uh, right, I'm not, I'm not doing the mentalist stuff right. now. I'm, t- I'm doing yes. the science mm. bit. But he's not. He's still doing the mentalist bit. And this yeah. is what a lot of my exactly. conjurer friends say. Well, yeah, but I mean, he says he's a liar. That's what, that's what yeah. mentalists, that's exactly. what conjurers do. They're professional liars. <laughs> They're honest liars, you know. Um, but the ethics as well is the point you made, which I think is a really important yeah. one. Because, yeah. you know, the stuff that he does in the name of entertainment you would never get past an ethics no. board for uh well, the one they yeah, did recently the, the push
0: i believe it was when mm. when people when he was obviously no one was physically hurt but i was like i know he says everyone's fine and they had a good time but like i don't know if i'd be mentally okay if i pushed someone thinking that i Regardless of if it happened yeah. or not, knowing no, exactly. that I've done yeah. it, I think I'd be a bit rattled. Yes. to be honest. Well, I mean, I
2: mean, again, you know, I mean, going back to the kind of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of Stephen Fry assassination, mm. where you know, by a post hypnotic suggestion, you could yeah. make someone. I mean, mm. would if you really thought that you had actually just done that, you'd, you'd mm. really have, you know, serious okay. doubts about yourself as a person. I, I mean, mm. and, the, and the, clearly, the implication here is that person knew from the word go that this mm, was yes. not for real, you know? Mm-hmm. And and this is the same kind of explanation. There have been studies looking at the use of hypnosis, um, to see whether you can make people do things that they, they would not normally do, you know, uh, including things like um, selling drugs in school yards mm-hmm. and uh, throwing acid in the experimenter's face and so on. And you dig a little bit deeper and you, it becomes apparent that actually the people who were doing that stuff didn't think it was for real for one minute. You know, they, they just mm-hmm. kind of went along with the experimenter because...
1: That seemed like yeah. the right thing to do at the time. You know? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, brilliant. All right. Well, um, we've kind of uh, we've taken up um, that time. I don't know if, if you can hear cat...
2: my cat purring on my yeah, shoulder no. at the oh, moment. <laughs> so, it's on, yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: he's very loud motor. Oh, so um, he's yeah. lovely. He's, uh, he needs he's after some attention. Yeah, he wants food. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, sorry. Well, yeah, I was, I was kind of wrapping up really. If um, <laughs> yes, there's okay. anything you wanted to um, uh, to tell us about, Is there any, you've got a book coming out or you're writing a book.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm in something? the a process of writing um, the. Uh, yeah, as, as I was explaining to you earlier, Stephen, um, yeah. initially I was going to call it Why Weird Stuff Matters, but then as a joke, I said to a few people, or I might just call it The Science of Weird Shit. And they all said, oh, I'd buy that. That's so the it's The Science of Weird Shit. So that should be coming <laughs> out sometime next year from uh, MIT Press
1: brilliant That's we'll be lovely. looking out for that thank you okay well thank you so much for joining us today uh, professor pleasure. chris french it's been an absolute pleasure um to listen to you and uh, get your insights onto these areas thank you very much okay thank, thank you. you
0: what should i think about is an evil sheep production <sighs>